Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender diverse people. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Carnegie. Women on the Line recognizes that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and that their sovereignty was never ceded. On this week's episode, we hear from Jaya Keeney, author of Making Gabies, Queer Reproduction and Multiracial Feeling, published with Duke University Press. Jaya is a lecturer in Gender Studies at the University of Melbourne, where she researches and teaches in the areas of Feminist Science Studies, Queer Studies, and Queer of Colour Theory. Her book examines the complexities and intersections of race and queerness when creating queer families. Your book, Making Gabies, talks about what it's like to create a queer family in so-called Australia today. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about what you learnt about the process of creating a queer family from your participants? Yeah, definitely. And thank you so much for having me on the show. It's really lovely to have the opportunity to speak about the book um, with you. Um, I learned a lot from my participants. I guess the broad kind of context of uh, queer family making um, was a central part of their narratives and how that's changed in the last decade to two decades. Um, so a really central focus of the book is this transformation in the last one to two decades of queer family making um, that began as a really kind of DIY um, practice and process because of the way that queer families um, and queer people having children were kind of rendered anathema to the dominant model of, of family making, of families that was heterosexual and nuclear. Um, and so queers, of course, found ways to have families outside of that model and outside of the IVF industry's support um, as they were often locked out of those industries. But in the last decade to two decades, there's been a real transformation um, and that is kind of has followed the course of me um, starting to identify as queer as well in my own life. So when I first came out, queer people were really not hailed as potential reproducers in the way they are today. And today I feel like um, queer people have become a really central uh, target market for the IVF industry. There's these forms of legal enablement, but also kind of social acceptance uh, in Australia for queer family making of certain kinds um, and a sort of biomedical support uh, so forms of more DIY family making that might have been central in the 1990s, 80s, um, early 2000s, uh, they've now kind of transformed into more formalised um, forms of creating families through the IVF industry and through technologies like donor conception and surrogacy. Um, and with that comes a whole form of whole range of tensions um, and I think tricky questions for us as well as um, new beautiful ways of having families. Yeah, it's a it's a complex industry and uh, process, I think, for most people to navigate. In the book, you talk about settler colonial social norms and how they have historically defined family and motherhood. I found this really interesting. Could you talk about how this has impacted queer families today and what defines queer parenting now? Mm, sure. I mean, I think that when you're talking about reproduction, um, when you're talking about race, and especially when you're talking about those two things together, um, you have to centre settler coloniality as the context in which those things proceed. 
um, in Australia and a range of other places today. Um, and I think part of the work of the book is to try to trace and unpack some of the ways that uh, settler colonial legacies are operating, even when they might not be really centrally visible. Um, I think reproduction is a central technology of colonisation, um, both the control of reproduction in general um, and also kind of contouring who has access to reproductive support, um, social support for their parenthood. Um, the ways that that manifests uh, in the book and in the experience of queer communities today, I think, is that uh, certain kinds of queer people are increasingly being um, hailed as intending parents or um, potential parents and their reproductive goals are supported. And in settler colonial contexts, that often comes at the expense of other groups um, whose motherhood or parenthood is not supported uh, in those ways. Um, so I think it's important to look at groups that are that don't have access to the fertility industry in the same way that queer people of certain kinds often do. Um, a central part of that is, of course, financial capital, um, but also racialized hierarchies of who's considered a good parent. Um, and in Australia, we have to think about Indigenous communities and how reproduction and reproductive control has been used centrally against those communities. Um, another way that those legacies show up for queer people when they enter um, the kind of complex choices that, that they have to make when having a child um, is that the kind of governance structures and a lot of the restrictions around IVF or reproductive tech access in Australia today um, uh, bear the traces of colonial histories and efforts to reckon with them. So um, there's a very strict altruistic industry in Australia, for example, so you can't access donor sperm or eggs or surrogates um, in exchange for a fee. Those things all have to be altruistic. Um, and that comes in part from efforts to reckon legislatively um, with the legacy of child removal uh, that still continues to this day. Um, so there's some of the ways it shows up. Another central way that we might get into a little bit more um, when we talk about some of the participants' experiences is thinking about race in the frame of colorblindness. That's a kind of, I think, staple of multicultural settler colonialism because it allows whiteness to remain at the centre. I mean, I think that's a great segue into that topic. Um, that's the part of your book I was most interested in because um, the book is personal for me. My partner and I recently had a baby through IVF and I'm Indian and she's white Australian. And, you know, we reckoned with a lot of these questions. It was difficult and it's it's always fraught, I think. Um, but we we did, you know, a lot of the internal questioning and we just wanted the best thing for us and for our babies. So it was really interesting to read what other queer couples uh, considered the best thing for them and their babies because mm -hmm. the spectrum was huge. Um, so I'm interested to know, first of all, how you found the participants that you spoke with. Yeah. Um, I mean, I found the participants through a range of methods. Uh, I was supported by a lot of different um, queer community groups who kind of put out flyers for me and um, helped me to source people who might be interested uh, in speaking with me in that way. I also um, spoke with friends and friends of friends. Um, so as a queer person entering this research, I had a lot of friends who were starting to have children 
Um, some of them spoke with me or referred me to other other people. So that's kind of like a, um, you know, through my social networks. Um, and I found that people were really eager to be interviewed. I was really kind of blown away uh, by the generosity of people sharing their stories. And I think this is partly because um, there's not much documentation of these experiences in Australia of queer family making today, and particularly the intersection with race. Um, I think a lot of people are really eager to talk about, you know, the vexed questions that you've just alluded to in your own experience. Um, so, yeah, it was it was good to talk about. And I think, of course, um, being a queer and mixed race person myself uh, helped helped in the recruitment, right, um, for people to feel like there was a solidarity between us. What are your thoughts as a queer and mixed-race person on some of the reasons that you heard um, from different participants about what racial mix they would like their child to be? Mm. What are some of the anecdotes or stories that stand out to you and what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, the central thing I suppose that the book really explores and that I grapple with is um, that there seem to be in these experiences of Australian parents a collision or an intimacy between the queer and the multiracial uh, for a range of reasons, including that Australia's IVF industry for a range of kind of, um, for a range of historical reasons is quite restrictive. And so there's quite a limited supply of donor sperm and donor eggs. And so that meant that a lot of people uh, entered the IBF industry or went online to look for donors through informal methods, expecting to have a real um, diverse set of offerings mm -hmm. and then were quite surprised that the offerings were limited. Um, some of the couples I interviewed, for example, lesbian couples who were looking for donor sperm, found they were only offered like eight donors um, and for many of them none of those fit their desired um racial profile uh I was surprised by the fact that race and those kinds of racialized desires are so central in the IVF industry um I mean of course they are because the family is this the center of how we think about race we always kind of talk about race as something that comes from our parents um and we presume that that's a mother and a father so that's why the queer family is so interesting to me um but yeah, to your question of kind of some of the most memorable anecdotes, um, the most common kind of experience described in the international uh, literature on queer families is that people want a child that looks like them. And what that often means is um, a child that shares the same racial mix. Most frequently for me, um, that was white couples who wanted a white child who looked similar. And that's in order to kind of pass as or or look like a kind of traditional form of family. But that showed up also for a lot of the women of colour I interviewed um, for whom a kind of shared racial identity meant something slightly different, a shared racial identity between them and their child. It didn't mean uh, looking like a family to outside observers necessarily or not only. It was really wrapped up with a kind of uh, solidarity, a kind of anti-racist approach to, um, yeah, kind of promoting and supporting identities um, of colour, so kid, having children of colour as a kind of way to create an affinity in the family but also push against some of the racist assumptions that 
whiteness would afford more, more socially. But the other kind of set of really memorable anecdotes or experience experiences in the book is queer parents that um, consciously conceived children who were of a different um, racial makeup to either them or their partner. And I really wasn't expecting that when I went into the project. And that is quite unique to the Australian context as well. Um, quite different to ethnographies from the US and the UK, um, for example, that detail more what we would call race matching, um, where people try to match the profile of the parents to the donor. But in the people I interviewed, there was a big subset actually that um, chose egg or sperm donors of a different racial background to them or their partner. So are conceiving a particular kind of multiracial family. And while some of those stories were um, really beautiful and had sort of, yeah, lovely reckonings with um, difference in them, a lot of them also had concerning threads to them in that uh, colorblindness, as I alluded to earlier, and love were kind of positioned as the central ways to deal with um, a child with a completely different racial identity to the parents. And this included um, white couples who conceived children of colour um, through donors and or surrogates of colour, often overseas. Yeah, the colourblindness um, is really interesting because adoption has become extremely fraught. Um, you know, we've learnt so much over the years about how damaging it can be for a child of colour to be adopted into a white family, for example, who you know, choose the sort of colorblind narrative. The child then ends up feeling disconnected from both their adoptive family and from their cultural roots. And, you know, we've we've reckoned with that, I think, a bit more as a society and is now sort of not uh, looked on favorably to do that. So it's interesting that in this context, it's still a thing. Yeah, I was wondering what it felt like for you particularly uh, with the white couples who got a uh, surrogate in India or got someone to carry for them in India, gay men particularly, who then ended up with a biracial half-Indian baby and they explicitly said to you what traits they thought were good and bad about Indian people as a generalised whole. Yeah, can you talk a bit about what that was like? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was challenging. I think as a feminist researcher, you always expect as a kind of ethical part of research to place yourself in what you're studying um, and to kind of acknowledge or reflect on how your own identities bring you to a project and ground the knowledge you're able to create. But when I went into the project, I wasn't expecting some of those interactions to be quite so explicit, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, I did conduct some interviews um, with white gay couples that had um, pursued surrogacy, had children through surrogacy in India and Thailand, which were central kind of industries for gay surrogacy up until a few years ago, especially the ones that went to India, as you say, ended up um, conceiving biracial children. Uh, in describing those children um, and how they selected the egg donors in particular, they described desired traits um, as a way that they would kind of sift through the hundreds of donors that were on offer in the commercial industries of places like India. So they would talk about things, uh, one couple in particular, one participant in particular called Stuart talked about 
wanting to have an Indian egg donor that looked more international or looked a bit more mixed. And he referenced or gestured to my own appearance. I'm a mixed race, um, half Indian, half white Australian woman as kind of having similar traits with the egg donor they picked um, because they were desirable traits um, in a kind of implicit racial hierarchy, right? But also they were kind of traits that would make the child appear placeless um, or less easy to place the racial background of the child. Um, That within his narrative had a range of logics to it that he kind of explained about easing the passage of the queer family by not making the child appear as different as if they'd used a darker skinned donor and also as having to base the choice on something because there were such a wide array of donors. Um, And while I understand the choices are really difficult in this industry and a lot of queer parents feel quite vulnerable, it was really concerning how, firstly, um, really bare hierarchies of racial desire are being justified uh, in these kinds of choices, um, but also how choice is the only frame we have for talking about race in the industry and more broadly. And that's why I think I think that question of choice is why some of the links between the really rigorous anecdotes and reports from adoptees um, of the challenges with transracial adoption are not being taken up as yet in the um, IVF industry because the frame remains um, on patient choice or intending parents' choice as this thing that is kind of beyond critique, um, has to be supported. But when the choices being made are... uh, kind of enrolled in or perpetuating a really damaging racial hierarchy about which bodies and which traits are valuable and which are undesirable, like dark skin. I think we've got to push a bit more on the question of choice and whether that's sufficient. I don't think it's sufficient. As well as the idea that race is somehow in the body is biological. That's another central narrative um, that's kind of naturalised or papered over by the IVF industry that I'm really really concerned about. Uh, It ties into another thing you talk about in your book, which is that queer couples just have to make do. So that's another part of this whole thing where, you know, at the end of the day, you do have to make do. We don't have the same choices as everybody else. So, you know, given these two kind of contradictory things, where do you see the future for queer multiracial families going in Australia? Yeah, uh, it's a really interesting question. And I think it's a changing landscape at the moment. I mean, even since I did the research interviews um, for the book, that seemed or felt to me like a more liberal moment. It was just before the plebiscite that I did the interviews, the um, gay marriage plebiscite. Today, I think... um, There is more support for IVF access than ever before for queer couples, but there's also a global pushback and a kind of rise of the neo-right that really is using queer childhoods as a target, most visibly trans kids um, in really vile ways, but also increasingly the kids of queer people. Um, For example, in Italy recently with the kind of attacks on um, same-sex couples being able to be registered on birth certificates. Um, So I think there are fights that we need to be having and coalitions we need to build, um, in particular with uh, trans kids, um, to think a bit more about the future of queerness and childhood. But also I'm hopeful 
particularly in a kind of post-Black Lives Matter moment or in the wake of those movements, that there's a bit, a little bit more racial literacy or literacy about the fact that race and racism really work at the level of emotions and um, of love and the fact that even if you have good intentions or loving intentions, um, that's not sufficient. We need kind of forms of reflection and literacy, emotional literacy that look at how um, racism also structures our intimate lives really centrally. So I'm hopeful that um, there will be kind of more of those um, conversations going forward and we can think also a bit more about what queer multiracial families teach us about the myth of the nuclear family really and the idea that uh, that's just a kind of natural reproductive form but also yeah, the the fact that uh, there are coalitions between kind of anti-racism and uh, queer affirming family making, we need to just kind of surface them and thread them um, through a bit better rather than appealing to, yeah, the nuclear family model or biomedical forms to kind of liberate us. Absolutely. And I hope that we can look to being able to create, you know, multiracial queer families in a way that's easier for the families themselves and for the children to be able to reckon with things like racial identity and you know heteronormativity in the world today right yeah and I think what's central as well for me is to not play those things off against each other which is what queer multiracial families live and experience right but I suppose like queer love the history of queer movements has often been to center love is love Love makes a family, chosen family, and they're beautiful ideas, but they can become weaponized if we use them as the response to racial difference. Like they're not sufficient um, tools against racism. We need something a bit more as queer multiracial families and queers of color, I think, know intimately in our lives. Exactly. We live at the intersections of all those things. So tell our listeners where people can buy your book. You can buy my book uh, online from Duke University Press. Um, you can get that on their website. And also if you're in Melbourne, I hear that Readings has a few copies. So you can get your hands on a physical one there as well. Great. Jaya, thank you so much for joining us on Women on the Line. This has been a really enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Where do I belong? Tell me your story and I'll tell you mine I'm all ears, take your time, we got all night Show me the rivers cross the mountain scale Show me who made you walk all the way Oh
song is Chosen Family by Rina Sawayama. In this episode, you heard from author, lecturer, and researcher Jaya Kini on the complexities and intersections of race and queerness when creating queer families as explored in her book, Making Gabies, Queer Reproduction and Multiracial Feeling. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au slash womenontheline. I'm Carnegie. Tune into Women on the Line next week on your community radio station.